Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I am fortunate to be sitting here with Randy Yael Chaikind, MPH. She has been an experiential educator, author, and therapeutic writing coach for more than 20 years, helping people heal and transform their lives through narrative and expressive arts. She specializes in nonviolent communication, empathic listening, and transformational storytelling. Randy Yael has a master in public health and currently is studying licensed professional clinical counselor with a focus on narrative therapy. She lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where you can find her hiking, dancing, or performing at local storytelling events. Well, welcome, Randy. Thank you. Tell me what uh, is... A storyteller. Ah, we're all storytellers. Story is the thread of life for being a human. And being a storyteller is being, I'd say, present and awake to what your experience is, and then being willing to share that. And that's the hard part for a lot of people, right? Because it can be very vulnerable to share our stories. But really, when we share our stories that are really of our heart and not just the surface stuff, that's when the true connection happens. That's when we light up each other's eyes and with the resonance of knowing that your story is my story, is his story. It's very connecting. Well, I've been uh, thinking about something for years, which is because of people who facilitate storytelling like Natalie Goldberg, like yourself, like Miriam Sagan, they will, when there is a disaster, there will no longer be just one and Frank. And that takes us to one of the things that we're interested in, uh, being Jewish and telling our story. Mm. Could you speak about that? Mm. Well... Yes. Um, You know, let's take the Holocaust, for example. Um, The people that were the survivors of the Holocaust, they're in their 90s, 80s, 90s, older. And that whole generation, that story, the live part of that story is dying out. The importance of telling our stories, whether you're Jewish, Native American, Croatian, Iraqi, Palestinian, any cultural story, uh, it's an oral tradition first and foremost. 
And putting things down in our particular languages is another forum for those stories. But I believe that, and this is what I do in my storytelling workshops, is that there's four major important parts to storytelling. And we all need each other to help each other out with these. So the first part is learning how to access our story. And there's lots of stories that are buried deep. Families don't want to talk about them. They're too scary. It's too vulnerable. It's in the past. It's too traumatic. They don't matter. It's not important. But you know what? They do. Even on the smallest level, that inkling of a story needs to be accessed and brought out. And they, we don't have to spill our guts all the time or rip open our hearts and start bleeding to tell a story. Uh, we can just tell a story. And so accessing that story is really vital. And then how do we embody that story? Because we all carry our stories in our bodies. And those stories are passed generationally through birth lines, through our blood. And there's no accident that the son has the same chronic shoulder pain that dad does. It's not, sometimes it's because they're doing the same activities, but there's also something to be, something you said about passing those stories down. And so not only is it important to pass those stories down, but it's important to find the stories that we're telling over and over again that don't serve us any longer and start changing those stories. And so after embodying our stories, we learn how to tell our stories in ways that there's lots of reasons to tell a story, to entertain, to heal, for no darn good reason whatsoever, just to talk story, as the Hawaiians say. And really important part of this process is being witnessed in your story. And it's not only you standing up there and being heard, the person listening has an important role as well. That's an important part of storytelling, the listener and the person telling the story. That's a relationship there. And just being heard, my basic value is that we all just want to be seen, heard, and acknowledged for who we are. And that's our stories. And our stories are endless. There's endless stories we can choose to tell. And that's part of the healing is when we start saying, you know what? I don't really need to tell that story anymore. And all stories are created, not born. So why not pick another story or rewrite your story based on some, something else that would feel better? What is your true story? And I don't mean you personally. Uh, I often reflect on... I start to write and I tell a story about my mother and uh, then somebody reads it and they say, well, did that really happen? And I have to be honest, say, no, it, it doesn't. But it really reflects the flavor of my mother. What would you say about that? How true does a story have to be if it's autobiographical? I don't think there's any such thing as the truth. I think every story is a true story. Um, I think if you are in a particular profession, you need to be as accurate as you can, and that's why we have recordings and all that stuff. But the memory is a is a fickle partner, and 
uh, now there's a new genre. It's not that new anymore called creative nonfiction. Uh I think to capture that spirit, because, you know, for instance, you grew up in a household, your uh, sibling grew up in the same household with you. You can have very different stories about what it was like, what mom was like, what dad was like, even down to a particular event. Remember your 13th birthday when this and this happened? That never happened. It happened this way. Is anybody wrong? Is anybody right? It's how a person remembers the story. And that's actually the foundation of narrative therapy. A lot of other therapies probably too, but speaking about narrative therapy, you know, you have all of these memories. We remember things a certain way. They, when we remember a story, feelings happen in our bodies. We think something and then a feeling is stimulated. And there's millions and millions of memories. Just like when we're dreaming, there's millions and millions of pieces of information that come together. Why did we choose to remember just that particular memory when there's a thousand other memories that we haven't? remembered. So we have the opportunity as storytellers to not only go with what's really obvious, but to also dig in and say, well, what's not so obvious? And all of those are true for us in that moment. And just as an addendum, when you, when you write the story today, and if you write that same story in a month, they're going to be different. Slightly, sometimes, sometimes more. Are either true or not true? They're all true. For you. Well, I'm holding your book in my hands, and it's called Revelations of the Heart, a 49-day journey of poems and prompts to write your way to revelation. Hmm. Revelation? Could you, well, I just want to say first, when you were walking up, I was, um, oh, I was reading, yes, this poem that said that you spoke your name to the canyon and the canyon spoke it back to you. But then I was thinking of another poem where um, you you were taken to the country in the Catskills by your grandmother and you tell her to look at you while you're balancing on a, on a seesaw and then you make that a metaphor for your own heart and your own life so please speak on about this book and your metaphors and your poetry okay well um revelations of the heart is a 49 day creative springtime cleanse And it was inspired by a Jewish uh, holy, not just a holy day, it's a holy series of days called Counting the Omer, which starts the second day of Passover and lasts for 49 days. And the story, as we were told, should the story be held as truth or not, I'll let let that stay open-ended. But the story that we're told is that in the days of the Grand Temple, that um, the Jews would come and give thanks for the barley harvest. And an omer, is it means a measure. And so they'd offer one measure of barley the first day. 
two measures of barley, three measures of barley, etc., until the 49th day. And on the 50th day, that corresponded to the day called known as Shavuot, or also to the Christians know it as the Feast of Weeks. It's known as the time of revelation when Moses came down the mountain with the teachings, known as the Torah, and for the people. And so Shavuot is, you know, this there it's this uh huge holiday where you know the people are standing around waiting for Moses he went up 40 days earlier where's Moses where's Moses and he comes down and here's the torah and so and the torah is the teachings that are revealed to us and offer us revelation and then after the destruction of the temple that that uh practice went away and in the 12th century give or take the kabbalists the the mystical sect of judaism they resurrected the counting of the Omer, basing it on uh, seven of the ten Kabbalistic attributes of the Tree of Life. And so they basically, and there's a grid in the book that shows you, so one week is governed by Chesed, or loving kindness. Another week is governed by Gevorah, or strength. And then there's harmony and endurance and uh, to ferret, which means heart or balance. And so each week has its flavor. And then each day has its own specific flavor of each of the seven spherots. So it's a little complicated to think about, but the book has it all neatly laid out in a, in a graphic so that on your first day, it's the intersection of loving kindness and loving kindness. And so you, some people meditate on, well, what does loving kindness mean to me? And they, that's, that's part of what they do as their ritual. I chose to write a poem every day for 49 days. And this is my fourth year doing that. And, and so what I just, so there's several books already out there by wonderful rabbinic sources, uh, uh, Jill, Rabbi Jill Hammer and a bunch of others, uh, Rabbi Minkantrowitz. And so they've done the same thing. And then each day they've written uh, an interpretation of what that, that how, how to guide people to maybe interpret that day. And some people go about their day and just kind of bring those attributes in. There's lots of ways to do this. So I wrote my own interpretations and I turned my my creative writer process onto this. I've been writing poetry since I've been 16. I've got thousands and thousands of poems. And so um, why this is a special creative process, and this book is basically a writing guide and a poetry book at the same time. So it's a self-guided book. Um, it is that you reflect upon the, the two attributes of the day, uh, however you want to. And as I'm writing the poem, I give myself maybe maximally a half an hour to write the poem. I never look back on it. None of those poems have ever been edited. I And then I put it aside and I move on to the next day. So part of this creative spring cleanse is to determine, well, what what old habits or what old stories or what old beliefs have I been living this year that don't serve me any longer? And forty, and how can I take these forty-nine days, seven weeks? That's a long time, and use this mystical process that's been used for thousands of years, that leads up to this day of revelations, where thousands of people, Christians, Jews, all across the world, celebrate the revelation of Moses coming down the mountain and offering 
what's known as the Old Testament in some cultures. It's a beautiful time and a beautiful way to process and a way to let go of your perfectionism and just let your inner voice speak. So that's what this time is about for me. It has appeared to me that the Old Testament, and I don't know it very well, but has um, a lot of uh, about a punishing God, about uh, a certain level of violence, and about uh, women not being honored as. Uh, as sacred as sacred as men, so set me straight on that. <laughs> well, uh, absolutely. There's there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of stuff in the in the Torah, the five books of Moses, that's hard to read. Right now, we're coming up on Pesach, on Passover. You know. Can we see our way clear to have God kill all the first male, firstborn children? All, all of the killing children, is that really okay, regardless? Um, I was talking with a, a rabbi friend of mine today, and she's leading this Passover Seder coming up for her in South Carolina. And she was talking about the same thing. Okay, the frogs, okay, the lice, okay, all these other plagues, but really, do we have to kill all those children to prove a point? And so in Judaism, everything's a metaphor. I like to, there's, there's, to read the Bible in Judaism, there's five different levels of reading the Bible. There, it goes from the most literal sense to God's actually saying there were frogs and there were lice and there was all these plagues and all the children were killed to a very interpretive level. And so you can read it on each of these five levels from the most literal to the most metaphorical. I was born into this world looking at life through a metaphorical, mythological lens. That's why I'm a poet and a writer. I'm blessed with a very strong, detailed getting things done. So that's why I actually got to write a book as well. So first off, let's talk about all the punishment. The word for fear that's been translated, interpreted as fear is actually the word, the, actually the word means awe. So A-W-E. So when you, when you picture, you know, and on my mind's eye, it, you know, God says, go up the mountain, but nobody's allowed to touch that mountain. If they do, they'll die. And then these clouds descend on the mountain and there's fire and wind. And you could picture this incredible storm going on. And there's thousands of people around the rim of the mountain looking up at this. The one person who's leading them through the desert. Oh my God, what's going on? Can you picture in your body the story going on? How fearful and how scary that was. And then when you think of the word awe, well, awe can be very uh, fear inspiring as well. So it was an awesome event. Mm -hmm. Just like when I look at anything in nature and feel that sense of awe within me, that's when I feel most connected to spirit, mm -hmm. to God, to my God, not necessarily in the synagogue walls when I'm out in the woods. Mm -hmm. It's all based on awe. 
And so that's one big thing in the, the, what's called the old Testament. And you can't escape the fact that, you know, literally, I mean, they're talking about killing a lot of different people. You go in and kill those people and take over the land. Yeah. That's a hard thing to swallow. And there's not a lot of women mentioned in there. And, you know, and when they are mentioned, they're not mentioned in ways that we feel is respectful. There are tons and tons of um, feminist translated Torah out there uh, that I encourage you to read if you want to hear more about the what was going on with the women in the Torah. Um, and And so that book was translated by men in in the time that it was translated through their eyes, through their perspectives. And now it's seen as by some people as a literal truth. I happen to not see the Bible as a literal truth that way. I see it through mythological eyes and through metaphorical eyes. And I see it as an inch as a, it's called Mayim Chaim, the living waters. So every time you read it, you start over again, you read the whole thing, you start over again. Right after our Jewish New Year's, we start from day one again in the beginning and each time, because I'm different each time I read that book. So I, I read it as a tool. I can use it as an oracle. I read it as a great story. I, I read it in the ways I'll read everything else uh, with discerning eyes and a discerning heart and open eyes and an open heart, just like I'd read nearly any other book. So But yet you were, I mean, I, I don't know really, uh, for me, if a Jewish is a genetic or blood or, or I was going to say amoeba or, I don't know if, 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 it's, a, if it's a genetic uh, transmission. I have no idea, and I come from a good place for saying that because my mother was so-called Jewish, and so was every other woman uh, for generations. What is it, five thousand some years? But for me, I haven't come to uh, understanding whether that's a genetic thing or whether it's a mythological situation, whether it's a story or it's a physical thing. What I, what I want to get back to saying here is you, so you were also born what some people would call Jewish, and, but you really, you chose that. At a later time, you chose that mythology, that story. You chose to make it yours. So I'd like to hear about why you chose that. Okay. Yes, I was, I'm not sure that I understand about Judaism as a mythology, mythological choice, but I think I, I'm, I think I understand. So let's see. So yes, I was born Jewish but not raised Jewish. And I grew up with the quintessential Jewish grandma, Grandma Sally. We'd go to Astoria, Queens 
for Sunday dinners and we'd have blintzes and pot roast and, you know, just smoked carp, all these Jewish foods. So foods make up a culture. And my grandparents spoke Yiddish to my mother when they didn't want me to understand things. So language, culture. (laughs) And I think for a lot of Jewish people, Jewish means being part of the Jewish culture and that's around language and food and customs such as Hanukkah and Passover and things like that. And I didn't grow up with any kind of spirituality, any kind of faith. I didn't really grow up with any Judaism except when we went to grandma's house. Uh, When my parents divorced when I was very young and I moved with my mother and my sister, we celebrated Christmas we one one year had a Christmas tree, but it always felt kind of weird, you know, like we we're doing something against the rules, you know, but even though we didn't do anything else to support other things. Um, so it always felt for me growing up, I always felt a sense of loss around being Jewish because I didn't belong to being Jewish, but I was Jewish. Like Hitler would have killed me. Doesn't matter if I'm celebrating Christmas or not. There's Jewish in my bloodline, Jewish. And so that's, you know, that's, that's what it really came down to. And, and growing up, I didn't realize any of these things until when I stepped onto my Jewish path and really thought about them more thoroughly. Mm. But so I realized nine years ago when I stepped onto this path that I grew up with the story that Jews didn't want us because we were poor and everybody else wants to kill us because we're Jews. And I came to understand that that's not an, the, the poor Jewish thing, that's kind of specific to my own poverty story, my, my family and my mother's beliefs and all that, but came to understand that this kind of almost innate sense that people want to kill you because you're Jewish is a very common feeling for first and second generation post-Holocaust children. That's just what that kind of was infiltrated into a lot of folks. Do I have a big sample size to tell you that that's true for everybody? Absolutely not. But that's been my experience. So I always had a sense of conflict of a push-pull, foot on the foot on the gas, foot on the brakes, and uh, didn't know enough to be Jewish. So I couldn't be Jewish. Like I couldn't step into that world. So I kind of hung out with that lack of sense of a belonging for a long, long time. And then fast forward to uh, 2006, and I went on a vision quest. And at the time, I had been connected to myself, not necessarily as a spiritual person. I still wasn't really connected to that. I knew that when I was out in the woods, I would feel connected to this larger sense that I had always identified as more like my muse. That's the words would start flowing, paragraphs, poems, things would start always flowing through my head and I, you know, start writing. And uh, so when I was on this vision quest, I didn't, it was an open-ended question. What should I do for the next, you know, 30 years? I was in that kind of transition and I had been, I've been interpreting my dreams for a while. I'd been connected in some of those energies and I had this huge vision that I, it was a continuation of a vision I had from my meditations and it's kind of a long story and I won't tell it all now, but I was visited by my ancestors who were, um, uh, Siberian shamans and Jewish gypsy 
Romanian storytellers. And as they appeared in my mind's eye, with my very active imaginal mind's eye, the shamans were dressed head to toe in white, and the story, the Romanian gypsy storytellers were uh, had b- colorful clothes, men and women alike, and bangles and jangles all over their their ankles, and making noise and singing and moving. And over the course of the fasting time, I was named as a Jewish shaman storyteller. And in uh, some of the ceremony that I did on this vision quest, I said, what in the world is a Jewish shaman storyteller? I have no idea. I don't connect to Jewish at all. I have no idea. At that time, I had no idea what a shaman was. Uh, and But I knew I was a storyteller. So I promptly went home after the vision quest, and I googled Jewish shaman storyteller. And... <laughs> And up comes the only shaman rabbi in practically the entire world who lives in New Mexico, Gershon Winkler. And within 10 days, I had found an earth-based Jewish teacher here in Santa Fe. uh, And I started studying devotionally, 10 hours a week, Hebrew, Jewish studies, reading the Torah, starting good services, all very um, non-traditional and, and and this woman was part of Gershon's lineage, so I, I consider myself part of Gershon's lineage. I've spent lot, you know, spent time with Gershon. He's wonderful, and um, and so today I've evolved into an to a person who practices earth based Hebrew wisdom, among other things. But that's my primary basis. If I want to add the full string, I'm an earth based. Hebrew wisdom chick who is a contemplative Jew who also likes to listen to Christian rock. (laughs) And the reason I like to listen to Christian rock, which really floors a lot of people, is because they sing about God all day long. And that's all I want to do is talk about God all day long. And in fact, a lot of their songs are just English versions of the Hebrew prayers that I sing. So a lot of times I can sing them in Hebrew. So sometimes, and, and you know, Jesus, I don't have any, that's, Jesus is a Jewish prophet. And the only, the only time that I have any disconnect with Christianity around these songs is when they say that first, well, it's about Jesus dying for me. I don't relate to that. And that's fine. I just don't relate to that story. Um, and also that this isn't our home, that there's a, that, that heaven is actually where we're supposed to belong, not here. And that's also a story that I just don't resonate with at all. Um, so, Poof, that's a lot. <laughs> we are here in this very beautiful environment, both of us having chosen this environment. I came from Paris, you came from New Jersey. Whatever, we are embraced in an environment that we have chosen that is, I feel by reading your poetry, that is sublime to both of us. And um, to me, the environment in which I live transcends any philosophy, any mythology, any story. So what I would really like to think about is... uh, how your obvious passion, passionate connection with nature 
resonates with these stories that make up your belief system? That's a great question. I would say that they are primary, the foundation for me. I, you know, there's so many ways that we try to capture in words something that actually a word is too small to capture it. We do our best to muddle along, but really being in the experience of it is the experience. And not only because it's so individual, is it difficult to transcribe it to another person even in words, but there's just not a language for it except for experiencing it. And so, you know, when I, I love it here because of the access, I I didn't really have, I didn't really have that connection to myself back in New Jersey. I mean, I grew up in the countryside. I grew up on a lake. I grew, I was very lucky, but I was never a hiker. Um, but I always connected with the clouds and the trees and the stones and I heard their voices. And when I was a little girl, I turned those volumes down because nobody else in my life heard those voices. So I thought I was nuts. But they would just start telling me and that that would be the source of my writing. It was me. I'm just simply transcribing what I'm being told. And when I went on this vision quest, all those dials got turned on to full volume. And suddenly... Everybody started talking to me again. The coyotes, the flies, the ants, the water, the bushes, the sky, the clouds, the wind. And I remember taking in a deep breath and going, oh my God, where have you been? Where have you been? And of course they're like, we've always been here. The volume was on mute. And so that's never gone back for me. And... When I walk in the woods, I, I, I especially like going alone because I'm not distracted by anybody else's stories or voices. And living here, you can drive 15 minutes up the road and not see anybody for the rest of the day if you don't really want to, if you go at the right time of the day. And there's also something just about the power and the majesty of nature that I instantly remember my place in the things, in the way of the world. I know who I am and where I am. When I can get so lost in all of my stories, in my head stories, my thoughts, my beliefs, my about who I am or how things are supposed to be. And after a good 45 minutes or an hour into the woods, you know, I stumble across the hindquarter of a deer Oh, that's right. I'm not in charge out here. I'm actually, I'm nothing and I'm everything. And so I'm reminded about who I am as a human and where I belong. And all the years and years and decades of my searching for where do I belong, you know, I find it. And it's so simple. And there's no words for it. And we can call that God. We can call that spirit, divine universe, earth bay. I don't care. 
All I know is, is that that's my, it's connection. And we're trying to define that connection. I don't need to define it. My poems are just, I sit down and I close my eyes. I feel into the, what is, what does loving kindness feel like me to me today? Where do I find my strength? And invariably, I, and I just let it come out of me. And invariably there's nature is involved in that. And so the word nature, it's our true nature. What's your nature? Nature. It's all about nature. And for me, it's all about connection and finding where do I belong and how to be inclusive of others to connect with others so that they can feel that's being seen and heard and acknowledged. And maybe I'm just foisting my my stuff on everybody else <laughs> saying, don't you need to be seen, heard, and connected with and acknowledged? And in my experience, that's all we're trying to do here. And, you know, we're not really trying to make money and we're not really trying to do all of these things. And we've, we're trying to connect with each other. And by going out in the woods, I can become that conduit. I remember. Oh, I remember. And then when I remember, I can come back into the world of people and things and more jobs and money and food and love and hate and all the things that I'm involved with and we're all involved with. And I can, when I can present into that world and interface into the world in that wholeness, that I've experienced in the woods, things go better for me and invariably for the other people around me. And when I don't get that time to connect, and it's not always in the woods, sometimes I, I hit the floor and I just, you, you can sit and, med- sit and meditate. There's all kinds of ways to connect. And about that's the embodying piece. It's about getting out of all the thoughts in my head that I'm acculturated to and all the things that trauma stimulated and blah, blah, blah. I've psychoanalyzed myself for 35 years. I know the, I've mapped the whole wound. I, I've got a really good, good map. It's very worn, but it's still there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but none of that really matters when I can just sit down and ground my feet to the ground and my open up to the heavens. And that's, I know the metaphorical God things up top and, you know, but of course the tree of life, it's opposite. The roots, roots are going up into heaven, which is fun. Um, I think you just, we all do it in our own personal ways. Some people ride their bike for 30 miles, but whatever it takes, whatever we do to be able to um, go past, that's what timed writing is. That's Natalie Goldberg's. You, you bypass the brain and let, let the other voice speak through you. And that's what the Revelations of the Heart 49-day process is, is giving us a dedicated space every day to sit down and let that voice come out. And the first week, even for me, Oh, it's terrible stuff that comes out. There's, it's stilted. It's my head talking. But as I get into it, those layers start shedding. Just like after I get into the woods for a few minutes, the layers start shedding. And then all of a sudden, I'm there. Oh, there I am. I don't need anything else. I got it all right here. And that's the revelation. It seemed to me uh, 
by reading your poetry that when you are there, you have transcended. And uh, that is why I was challenging you about particular stories, the Jewish story or whatever story, because I, I feel that you have transcended. So my last question might be, what are you going to do with the poetry of your own transcendence? So I'm nodding my head. Oh, yes, I get it. I understand what you're saying now about the Jewish mythology. I understand that. Uh, what am I going to do with my own transcendence? You know, nothing, because you can't hold on to anything, because it's all going to change. I'm different. When I walk out this door, I'll be different. And that's why I don't edit the poems, because they are a chronicle. Those 49 days, every time I write them, it's a chronicle of my life experience in that moment. What, all of it. I'm willing to go there. I'm willing to let all of it hang out. Messy, clean, blissful, suicidal, whatever it is, the feeling is. And through writing the poem, no matter what I'm going through, it's the act of creativity that transcends the human experience of it for me. So there's a saying, beyond healing is creativity. I'm, you know, I'm always going to be on that, that path. That's just the path I've chosen, the healing path, the investigating, the looking, the practicing, the this and the that. But I've, I've done my time there. And so, for instance, a few weeks ago, I felt a strong sense of grief arise. I felt it. I was with it. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to express it. And I sat down and I wrote a poem, you know, in 20 minutes and let that poem write itself. That's the muse. It's us getting out of the way. Is the muse God? Is the tree God? Is the muse the transcendent self? All of, we're all trying to put all these words and define these things and I don't really care. I'm connected to this force that if I can slow down enough and say, and through a lot of practice, get out of the way, it speaks and I'm not in grief anymore. And I'm not doing it because I think grief's a bad thing. I just wanted to express it. And then I noticed after I expressed it, how to use your word, I transcended the kind of the, the yuckiness that I was feeling and I felt satisfied and I felt raw, but I felt alive and content at the same time. So I'm not trying to get anywhere, but that's just what happens. It's really satisfying to create something and, and know that it represents you in some way. So that's now the healing is the creativity The line is very, very fine between raw and awe. <laughs> I wonder if you would offer us one of your poems in closing. 
I would be delighted to. The awe in raw. I like that. So the giraffe is the representative representative animal of nonviolent communication. Marshall Rosenberg chose the giraffe as the emblem of to symbolize compassion because the giraffe has is the largest mammal with the largest heart. The the land mammal with the largest heart. So I paid homage to that. The day was day 48, which is the two attributes were finding foundation within majesty. And I wrote, what difference can a change in your perspective make be made for you today when you stand tall, trusting the firm foundation that's going to support you in all its majestic splendor? So that was my theme for the day. And I wrote this in honor of that called the giraffe. The giraffe has the biggest heart of all land animals. Warm-blooded passion requires powerful pumps of clarity and kindness to connect the heart and brain. So speak to me in giraffe. Let your heartfelt largesse hear me with giraffe ears. Lend me the benefit of all your doubts and let loose any stiff-necked ideas about right and wrong. Bless me with generous praise and tough love. Shower me with giraffe love, and I promise you, my heart will expand beyond any of our wildest dreams. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you very much. Still wishes.